Hey guys, um, I'm Will. I lead a connection group on Monday nights with Tyler. And, um, yep. And I'm going to read the scripture for us today. So we're in 1 Peter, and I had it marked, and then I came up here, and I don't anymore. So I'll find it with you guys. Um. Sorry. I was so prepared. There it is. All right. (laughs) 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2. And I didn't read this until during the worship set, so some of these words are kind of hard. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Would you pray with me before Ronnie comes up? Um, Lord, we just thank you for tonight, for the chance to gather and to just be back together as a group tonight. Um, Lord, we pray that um, we would just hear your word tonight through Ronnie. Um, would you just bring it for us as we, as we listen to him and um, remove distractions as we just seek to, to hear from you, know about you, and, and, um, and to love you more. Amen. What's up, everyone? Welcome to SALT. My name is Ronnie, one of the pastors here at this church, Doxa Church, and then one of the people that gets to help lead SALT Company, Will. Valiant effort, man. Thank you. Hopefully we all found found our way to to 1 Peter. Hey, one of the things that, you know, if you start coming to to SALT is every week we, we get up here and we open up the Bible. And so if you don't have a Bible, we have some on like a bookshelf right out there. They're blue. You can have one of those uh, after the, the service and everything. There's also a ton of apps on your phone. You can pull it out. Maybe your neighbor's got it. But follow along with me tonight as we open up the book of First Peter. And so to just kind of frame this up for us, if you were with us last semester, we actually went through the, the Gospel of John in a series called Conversations with Jesus. And actually the last place we ended in John chapter 21 was a conversation that Jesus had with this guy, Peter. Okay, in this letter, 1 Peter, it's a letter that he wrote really out of his experience of following Jesus. And Peter is an interesting guy to look at in the Bible. If you look at his life, he would have been a great UW-Madison student. Okay? He was like a small-town guy, a fisherman, and then he moved to the, the big city, Jerusalem. He was a very high-achieving guy. He was a competitor. He was a leader. Okay? But there was a, a dark side to his strengths. When you read about his life, you see that underneath his, his boldness was actually a, a selfish ambition and a jealousy. Underneath his drive, there was insecurity and this belief that he had to achieve in order to be significant. And underneath Peter's hard exterior, there was actually really a fragile man. Okay, if he had an Instagram account back then, his, his page and like the image he was putting out there would have been much stronger than what was actually going on in his heart. There is a leading thinker in our country today. His name is Jonathan Haidt. He's a professor at New York University in their business school, and he has called our generation the fragile generation. Okay, his, his words, not mine, but that's what he calls us. And in an article about this, he basically says, you know, we've grown up so sheltered and protected, so comfortable, that we don't know how to deal with the hardships of the world and we're deeply unsatisfied with our comfortable lives. 
Okay, and it might be an uncomfortable start to, to the message to call us the fragile generation, but it, it rings true. And there's another author, a New York Times bestseller named David Brooks, and he wrote an article recently in the New York Times, and it says, The Making of Modern Toughness, and this is what he says. He says, when I ask veteran college teachers and administrators to describe how college students have changed over the years, I often get an answer like this. Today's students are more accomplished than past generations. So, great job. But they're also much more emotionally fragile. So it's being widely reported. I'm sure you've heard about this in some way. I don't know if they're talking about this in your classes, but for all of our abilities and accomplishments and talents, we're being exposed as the most anxious and depressed generation ever recorded in history. Okay, so let's shift the tension off ourselves for a second and go back to Peter. Peter, he had a, a great moment of fragility where he was actually exposed, and it was when Jesus was on trial. Maybe you remember it from last semester, or maybe you just heard the story, but basically as, as Jesus is being beaten and interrogated, Peter, one of his closest followers, his guy, he's actually outside listening in, warming himself up next to the comforts of a fire. And then there was this young woman, this little girl who actually recognizes him, and as Jesus is being beaten, she asks him if, if he's with Jesus. Okay, and you know how it goes. In that moment, Peter knew that if he identified with Jesus, he actually might end up suffering with Jesus. Okay, and so out of fear and self-preservation, he denies Jesus to a little girl. And it's this picture, okay, and you get the picture of choosing the comfort of this fire over the cost of following Jesus, the cost of the cross. And so this was a moment for Peter where the, the fragility of his faith was revealed for what it was. But that's not how we remember him, right? Despite his, his failure, we saw in John 21, the message that we actually ended the semester on was about Peter's forgiveness and restoration from Jesus. Jesus like makes him breakfast by this other fire. And there's something about this encounter with Jesus where the grace that Jesus shows him, it fundamentally changes Peter, makes him a different person. And so now when we look back at the apostle Peter, the banner over his life is not coward, but courage. He went from denying Jesus by a comfortable fire to for the rest of his life, embracing the fires of discomfort and suffering, even one day being crucified just like his savior. Listen to what his perspective about suffering was like. This is going to be later on in 1 Peter. He says this, in this, this suffering, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, though it perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You listen to his words and you see that Peter's faith was no longer fragile and flimsy, but it was resilient. And like Jesus, he would one day be crucified because of his faith, but like Jesus, he knew that the cross was just a pathway to the crown. And what we have in 1 Peter is really a vision from Peter of the Christian life, and it's a vision that we desperately need today. We need to be able to see what he saw. Okay, David Brooks, the guy I was quoting earlier, he continues in his article, listen to what he says. He says, in short, emotional fragility is not only caused by overprotective parenting, it's also caused by anything that makes it harder for people to find their telos. Have you guys all found your telos yet? 
You know what that is? You got, you got one of those? You tell us, it's, it's, a, it's a word for your purpose in life, okay? It makes it harder for people to find their telos, their purpose for life. He says, we're all fragile when we don't know what our purpose is. When we haven't thrown ourselves out with abandon into a social role, when we haven't committed ourselves to certain people, we feel like a swimmer in an ocean with no edge. He says, if you really wanna make people tough, then make them idealistic for some cause. Make them tender for some other person. Make them committed to some worldview that puts uh, today's temporary pain in the context of a larger hope. Okay, and that, that last line, that's, that's it. That's what Peter saw. Today's temporary pain in the context of a larger hope. Faith in Jesus is a resilient faith because that's what it does. It puts today's temporary pains in the context of a larger hope. Next week, we're gonna see that Peter, he called this his, his living hope. That the cross comes before the crown, that suffering comes and then glory. So wherever you're at tonight with God, wherever you're at tonight with, with the Bible, what, what Peter is doing this semester is he's basically reaching out his, his hand to us. He's offering us up his perspective on following Jesus. And through this letter he wrote saying, hey, let's, let's follow Jesus together. His message is going to be, it's not easy, but it's worth it. And it's possible. And we're gonna start the journey tonight by just looking at those first two verses that, that Will read. And basically what he wants us to know is just three things. He wants us to know who we are, whose we are, and what is ours. Okay, so let's jump in. Back to verse one. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Okay, and so what he's doing right at the outset of this letter is he's actually cutting right to the chase. And I don't know if you caught it, but he's telling us a very uncomfortable truth. And it's this, Christians are not cool. It's kind of a bummer, right? Christians are not cool. If you're looking for just like a, a truth that you can take away from the Bible tonight, it's this. If you become a Christian, you will never be as cool as you could have been. If that's the only thing you remember. Okay, he uses the word exiles. Did you see that in verse one? He says exiles. It could also be translated as your, your strangers, your aliens. He's saying that Christians, they're not in the mainstream. They're actually out on the margins. And he's saying you're scattered around, dispersed throughout all these different cities as exiles. And if they would have been reading this originally when it was written, they'd be like, so Peter, you're telling me like I grew up in Galatia, Peter, and you're telling me I'm a stranger and an outcast in my own hometown? And you'd say, well, yes, yes and no. Over, over Christmas break, I started watching a, a new show called The Man in the High Castle. Has anybody seen this show, started watching this show? I've been, I've been kind of talking to some people about it. A couple of people know what I'm talking about. The Man in the High Castle, it's on Amazon. And the basis of the show, I'm only just through season one, so I'm kind of a little bit confused still, but from what I can gather, the basis of the show is it's basically imagining what the world would be like and what America would be like if Germany and Japan had won World War II, okay, and taken over America. And so basically you've got like half of the country, like the East Coast is under the Nazi rule and then the West Coast is uh, owned and ruled by Japan. And basically the Americans, this is, it's like set in the 1960s and they're all living under the rule of these oppressive dictatorships. And the main tension and like the plot of the show is basically the decision that the Americans have to make about their identity. 
Who are they going to be now that they're under these oppressive regimes? So like the vast majority of them, out of fear and, and out of complicity, they basically just submit to this, this new way of life, this new story. And for the most part, like, like the, even like the show, it's kind of like gray and dark because they don't really enjoy it. They just kind of settled in out of fear and it's more comfortable and they just get used to it. But then there's this other group of people, this minority group, and they're called the resistance. Okay, and the resistance, what they do is basically it's this underground group of Americans and they've heard rumors and they've seen these films that there's actually another story out there. There's these films circulating around the country and they show footage of America actually winning the war. And I'm still confused as to like, did they really or is this not real? Or like what's going on? But there's these films that are circulating around and it's like, it's this rumors, it's this basically alternative story that would change everything if it was true. So the resistance, what they do in, in the show is they're basically working together to smuggle these films around the country in the hope that they can get the message out that this isn't the way that things have to be, that there's another world out there, that there is a better life. And for the most part, they're just this minority group and a lot of the other Americans, they don't want to get involved because it seems too risky. It seems safer and more comfortable to just settle down with the Nazis and the Japanese and be oppressed and, and it'd, be, it'd just be too risky to put your hope in this alternative story. And this is something of what Peter means when he calls us exiles as Christians, except he's talking about real life, not just a movie. He's saying that a Christian is a person who still lives in the world, but he's heard and believed a message that there is another world, a better world, another king and another kingdom. A Christian is someone who's part of a resistance, but not against any like just particular human government, but actually against the satanic and demonic forces that animate all of the evil that's in the world. Okay, later on in 1 Peter 5, we'll get there at the end of the semester. This is what he says about it. He says, Christians, be sober-minded and be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And so notice he didn't say your adversary, Emperor Nero, or your adversary, Joe Biden, or Donald Trump. He said, the devil. He says, resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And in The Man in the High Castle, the show, the resistance, it's basically just fueled by this hope that the suffering and the sacrifice that they're going through is going to be worth it someday. That they're going to be able to get these films out and this alternative story that they believe in is going to be true. Listen to Peter again. He says, and after you've suffered a little while... The God of all grace, the God who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, he will himself restore, comfort, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion and forever and ever. Amen. In the show, all the people, like the Nazis are always like, Heil Hitler! And they're like, do, they do this thing. This is, this is Peter's like, hail Jesus moment. I don't know if anyone's ever done a, a hail Hitler preaching a sermon before. Will, probably not. It's probably not the thing you're supposed to do. Here's my point, we're, we're exiles, we are, we are exiles. If you are a Christian, this is who Peter is saying you are. Let's be honest, I, I'm sure that like coming to Madison for college, it was not at the top of your list to be an exile, right? You weren't thinking like, how can I move myself more and more to the margins of society by going and getting my college education? 
You weren't thinking, let's go to Madison and figure out how can I actually live a more uncomfortable life? How can I become less cool, more weird, and more strange in the eyes of the world? And I know that some of you, I don't recognize you, you might be new to Salt, and this is one of your first times, and so like potentially I should have picked a different text of scripture to, to talk about tonight, but it's too late, we're, we're pretty deep into this. It's not the best sales pitch, right? Like this isn't like the, the it's not a, a, a cool thing to tell you that you are in exile. Come join us in exile. That's his, his sales pitch. But here's the thing. That is basically what Peter's saying, isn't it? Like if you notice the tone of the text, not just the words on the page, but, but his tone, he's not writing as an Eeyore. You guys know what an Eeyore is? He's like an elephant or a donkey of some kind, right? And when, I think Winnie, Winnie the, in Winnie the Pooh, right? And he's, and he's, and he's downcast. And he's like, he's always, he's always complaining and despairing. Is he an elephant? What is he? A donkey. He's a donkey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, I, I, that was my second guess. Peter, <laughs> Peter's invitation for us to be exiles is not done in like a whiny and complaining tone, but he's doing it with a note of joy. Okay? He's like, this is a good invitation. Because don't misunderstand me, Christians are not supposed to be weird for weirdness sake. Okay? You don't get exiled to the margins when you're a Christian because you've actually become less significant, less important, and less secure. You become a stranger to the world that you grew up in because you become a child of God. A stranger to the world because God adopts you into his family. Way back in the Gospel of John that we studied last semester, it says about Jesus that he was in the world and the world was actually made through him, yet when he came, the world didn't know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So we are who we are because of whose we are. And that's where Peter goes next. Look at verses 1 and into 2. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles, and that word elect, it means chosen. Okay, so chosen exiles, chosen to be strangers of the world, of the dispersion and Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia, according to, because of, the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood. And so follow the argument with me. He's saying verse 1 is true because of, according to, verse 2. As a Christian, you're exiled from like the heartbeat of the world because you've actually been pulled into the very heart of God. First, he says, you have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. You guys know what foreknowledge is? Is that a word you use often? Probably not. What foreknowledge means, it, it's amazing. Foreknowledge is a predetermined love. It means like you've heard that God loves you, but it means that God's love for you is actually prior to you. It means that he decided to set his love on you before he even decided to create you. I wrote in the 90s, but I don't think you guys were born in the 90s, were you? The 2000s? Yeah. Before you were created at some time in the year 2000, God decided to set his love on you. 
And we're not used to this. We're not used to like love being prior. We're actually used to having to prove ourselves worthy of love. That's where all the anxiety and dating comes from because you're constantly just interviewing with this person to see if they're going to love you. The same thing goes for, for social media. And what Peter is saying, don't miss this, what he's saying is that you and I have actually been an object of God's loving concern from all eternity. You gotta let that one sink in. One place where I think we actually see this happen with humans is with a desire to have children. Okay, so I've got a, a wife named Caitlin, and I remember before we, we started having kids, I remember having this feeling where, where Caitlin and I, we, we made a decision that we wanted to try to have kids. And I remember after that decision was made, after that commitment was made, this strange feeling of actually loving them before they even existed. Before we ever named my boys Jackson and Hayes, before they ever did anything good or bad, I loved them. And that love, it drove me to want to create them. And that desire to want to create them drove me to some other things that I'm not going to get into tonight. And Lord willing, the, the next child that Caitlin and I are going to adopt is actually, I just said it, we're going to try to adopt. We're going to try to adopt uh, somebody internationally. Yes, I, it was not, it was, you, weren't, you didn't need to, to clap for that, but, but it, is, it is a good thing. Um, but yeah, the, the next kid that we want to have, we want to adopt internationally. So by definition, like we don't know who this child is yet, but I will tell you, I'm praying for that child and I'm praying that it's going to be a little girl and she's not going to look like us. She's going to come with some extra challenges for sure with adoption. She's going to cost a lot of money and I love her. I love her right now. I prayed for her today. I love her already. We've, we've chosen, we've decided that we're gonna go and get her. She might have already been born, she might not have been born yet, but we're gonna call her out of an orphanage into our family. And this is what it means to be chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And so especially for you, if you wouldn't, when you think about your own parents, your own family, if you wouldn't use the word love to describe that relationship. If it's actually hard for you to think about the relationship, you actually especially need to hear this, that God wanted you in his family. And if that even feels like nice, but kind of distant, I want you to know that while you're here in Madison, Doxa Church and Salt Company is wanting to be like that expression of the family of God for you while you're here. So the foreknowledge of the Father. But not only that, it says we've been chosen in the sanctification of the Spirit. Okay, and this one, I know there's like some crazy words that he's saying here, but this is like amazing news for college students in Madison, Wisconsin. So question for you. Have, have y'all realized yet that a good amount of your ambition and your drive for achievement is actually driven by fear and by trying to cover your shame? Have you realized that yet? You're afraid of failing and being a failure, so you work harder. Okay, you dread not measuring up to your parents' expectations, so you study longer. Somewhere along the way, you learn that people show you affection and they value you based on what you look like, so you work out more or you eat less. 
You have this feeling inside of you where you're empty and unsatisfied or maybe just bored, and so you're constantly chasing after short-term highs through alcohol or sex or video games or, or whatever. And what you're doing in, in all of that stuff, what we're actually all trying to do is we're trying to, to cover our shame. We're trying to cover our sense of inadequacy. We're trying to fill a void. And the problem is the whole thing hinges on you, your strength, your performance. And what Peter's saying here in this passage, he's saying, what if I told you that your creator can put you back together? He can make you whole again. What if I told you that the glory and the honor and the fullness and the love that you're seeking is something you will actually never achieve on your own or in earthly things, but you don't have to. You can receive it. That's what it means to be sanctified in the spirit, to be put back together by God. And we're going to get to more of this later in 1 Peter, but that doesn't mean there's no effort in the Christian life. It just means that the Christian life isn't something we earn. It's received. It's called grace. Okay, and then he says this, this thing. He says, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood. This is the last thing he says about, about whose we are. Okay, we've been chosen for obedience to Jesus Christ and for, for sprinkling with his blood. Here's, here's what this means. It means that, that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, at one point in, in eternity past, they made a decision knowing that if they created the world, humans were going to mess it up and they did it anyway. Okay, so God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and the Trinity, he, he made a decision to create the world, but then he made another decision to redeem the world to recreate the world. And this decision, it came with a cost. We who have ruined the world with our sin cannot be in God's family in our sin. The Bible's picture of sin, it says a lot about sin, but, but it, it kind of paints this picture as if we're all just, we're all covered in it, infected with it. It's just, it's all over us. It's pervasive. It's like, like if you look at the, the snow outside of Madison right now, the, Madison, the city is just covered in snow. And you can get out there and you can get out there with your shovel and you can shovel it away and you can have a good day and you can clean yourself up, but you wake up in the morning and then there's just more. And I'm talking to you as somebody who is a Christian. I'm saying I wake up the next day and there is just more sin in my life. But the Bible's picture of sin isn't like this pure, beautiful snow. It's actually horrific and ugly. It uses images like, like this disease called leprosy, where your skin is just basically falling off, or the stain of blood. And when God, out of his love, made a decision to redeem us, he knew what it would cost him to take away that stain. He knew that the price of our redemption, the cost of our forgiveness would be the shedding of blood because sin and evil has to have justice. It has to be accounted for. It has to be judged. You commit a crime in like a human court, you go to jail. You commit cosmic treason against God and you harm people made in the image of God, you die eventually and you go to a place called hell. That's what you and I deserve in our sin. That's how serious it is. That's how bad it is. But God made a decision. God made a decision, a decision to have Jesus shed his blood instead of you, instead of me, in our place. And this is how he forgives us. 
Okay, it works like this. Rather than making you pay the price for wounding him, he actually takes the wound upon himself. This is how all forgiveness works. This is how cosmic forgiveness works. That's why it hurts so bad to forgive. It's because rather than putting the, the pain that they caused you back on them, you decide to absorb it into yourself. And that's exactly what was happening on the cross. And so it says obedience to Jesus Christ because the first step of obedience to God is simply to come to him at the cross and then be sprinkled by his blood. There was an Old Testament prophet named Isaiah who had a, a pretty vivid vision of a, of a conversation with God where God explained this to him. So just imagine this with me. Isaiah, he, he hears from God and God says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. So Isaiah is like, he's, he's seeing God, he's hearing God talk to him. God says, come to him. So I just want you to picture yourself, if God did that, you're standing there with God as a sinner, completely infected, completely corrupted, by sin, there is, there is blood on your hands for things that you've done, for things that you haven't done, for things that you've thought, for things that you've intended to do. You're standing there with God. He says, come now. Let us reason together about this. Let's reason together about your life and how you've lived it. There's nothing you can do in that moment but have your head hanging down. And as your head's down, he says, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. And your head lifts up from your shame and you look up and you see Jesus. You see him hanging there on the cross. You see his blood being poured out. And you see this phrase from Peter, the, the sprinkling of his blood. You get covered in the blood and you are miraculously clean. You are white like the snow out there in Madison. Because when Jesus, he sprinkles his blood on you, he pays for your sins and he purchases you as his own. You become his. A life of obedience and relationship begins and he becomes yours. So let's see how Peter ends his, his greeting. He says in verse 2, May grace and peace be yours in abundance. Who we are, whose we are, what is ours. Grace and peace in, in abundance. Theologian uh, Edmund Clowney he says that this line right here in verse 2, right at the beginning of the letter, he says, this is the message of the whole letter in, in miniature. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. This is what Jesus desires to give us in himself. And we've seen so far that Peter, he's, he's a dreamer, right? 2020 has exposed how broken our world is and how broken we are. But Peter's saying there's a different story. He's saying there's an alternative narrative out there. It's called the gospel. There's a better world coming. He's saying, join the resistance. Join with me. Come be an exile. He says, put your faith in Jesus. In today's temporary pain, your sin and your suffering, it can be put in the context of a larger hope. You can become resilient in this life. You can become immortal in the next life. He's a dreamer. But he's also a realist. He gets it. He knows that life is hard. He knows that the cross comes before the crown. And I know that the semester's just starting. Another semester of school. Beyond that, just every week we come in here and we're all carrying our own individual 
burdens. Like David said earlier, I'm not really sure that 2021 is going to be that much better than 2020. And that's why I love the way that he ends this greeting. He says, may grace and peace be yours in abundance. Peter's saying, it's not going to be easy, but God will provide for you. When you were a spiritual orphan, the resources were scarce, but you're not an orphan anymore. God has adopted you into his family. He is a God of abundance to meet your every need. He's saying it's not going to be easy, but God will be with you. That's what grace is. Grace is not like an abstract term. It is God's loving and empowering posture towards you. It's the way that he feels about you. He, he delights in giving you what you don't deserve, his love. So he's like a father with his children. He helps us when we fall. He forgives us when we fail. He protects us from all trouble. God will be with you in abundance. And he's saying it's not going to be easy, but God will comfort you. He'll give you peace. He'll, he won't just give you kind of like the temporary peace that you get from a cup of coffee or from like a, a moment of, of uh, humming and meditation and yoga or whatever. He's going to give you a, a peace that transcends all circumstances. Because you know you're on your way home. And your father's already with you. You're on your way home to heaven, the ultimate place of peace. But that's what we're going to talk about next week. So let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for choosing us. God, we have become aware tonight that we, we did not deserve you. We did not, we did not seek you first. You sought us first. But we are blown away by your love and by your pursuit for us. God, thank you for the decision that you made to remake this world. Thank you for the decision you made to remake our lives. Thank you that you decided to pay the price, Jesus. Thank you that you decided to show us grace. God, and we want to be a people that are made different by you. We want to be a, a people that learn to follow you, but it all starts with you and your grace, not us and our effort or our performance. God, show us the way this semester. Help us to be people that are so caught up into your story that we live stories full of grace and peace and joy and abundance. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.